Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by Bridge Bank. Today's Thursday, October 1st. Weekly jobless claims are down, COVID cases in Wisconsin are up, and we're focused on the United States of burnout. We're now nearly seven months into the pandemic, and a lot of us are simply exhausted. We've been working harder or looking harder for work with our kids doing school from the next room, all while trying to meet our standard financial obligations and, to whatever extent possible, family and social obligations too. But there's an argument that, for many Americans, this goes beyond just needing a vacation or a few good nights sleep or even a vaccine. And my guest today, author Anne Helen Peterson, makes the case in her new book that millennials are facing a more endemic sort of burnout than did their parents or their grandparents, primarily because of socioeconomic drivers like student debt and automation and historical placement that led many of them to graduate high school or college in the midst of the Great Recession, and the consequences of that are still being felt a decade later. The question, therefore, is if burnout is worse for millennials than it has been for others in the past, and what can be done to reverse that trend? In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with Anne Helen Peterson. But first, this. We're joined now by Anne Helen Peterson, author of the new book, Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. So, Anne, let's start with the basics here. How do you define burnout? I think of burnout as the sort of exhaustion that happens when you're running yourself really hard, right? With work, with life, everything. And you hit the wall. And instead of like collapsing and changing things about your life in order so that you're not running that hard, you hit the wall, you scale the wall, and then you just keep going. So burnout becomes that feeling of exhaustion that is just in the background of your entire life. It's just there. Is it something that right now you feel is a societal construct in general, or is it something that you believe is being exacerbated by policy, for lack of a better term, whether that be economic or some other sort of policy? It's both, right? It is something that is fundamental to a lot of our American conceptions of like work, just like more work is always better work, right? Is a very American idea. And that intersects with a lot of the policy decisions just in terms of deregulatory policy and lack of social safety nets that make it feel like life is just very unstable for a whole lot of millennials. So you say a whole lot of millennials. So I would think a lot of boomers, a lot of Gen X people who don't get talked about much, but a lot of Gen X people would look and say, that's life. You just happen to be getting older and realizing it. To some extent, that's true. But I think that there was more stability for a whole lot more people when we had more robust safety nets, right? And when there was far less student debt that was weighing down our entire generation. So I think if you look just at the figures of it in terms of wealth accumulation and stability and ability to purchase a home, all of these different things, millennials are the first generation to take a step back since World War II, essentially. When you look over the last 30 years, say, or maybe 40 years, are there certain points, whether they be policy decisions, whether they be socioeconomic developments that you look at and go, that was a milestone? Like to get to this point, that was a particularly important moment. Drawing on the work of much more skilled historians, to me, the real shift happens with Reaganism in the 1980s. And you have a generation of new voters and a coalition of conservatives and other people who are looking at 
the instability of the mid seventies and the early eighties, you know, losing the stability of the so-called golden age of American capitalism in the post-war period. And they say, okay, what are we going to do to try to regain that? We're going to cut taxes and turn towards trickle-down economics. And we're going to defund a bunch of institutions, you know, whether that's educational institutions, different things across the board. And so you have the beginning of those tears in that safety net from that time. Reading some of the reviews of your book, somebody in the journal, basically their takeaway in the journal is the journal, but the takeaway was that your feeling was, quote, private equity should be banned or highly regulated. And then there was an NPR one saying they felt at least you're calling for kind of sweeping labor policy changes. Are they right? And if so, what would those changes be? This isn't a societal problem. So the issue of banning private equity, there's a whole chapter that is essentially, well, there's two chapters. One is how work got shitty and how work stays shitty. And one of the ways that work stays shitty for a lot of people is due to the way that private equity treats labor. What do you mean by that? How private equity treats labor? So private equity treats any sort of acquisition, not as a company that is run by actual humans, right? They are thinking of how can we extract the most value out of this company and then resell it or you know whatever. And there are so many examples of what happens when private equity takes hold of a company and the actual human wreckage that in terms of jobs and stability that is left in its wake. And you could look at something like what happened at the Denver Post, but you can also look at what happened at Toys R Us. So I think that is private equity in and of itself a horrible, malevolent force? I don't know, but it should be regulated. If you were queen of America and could just dictate law or dictate rules, Give me one thing you think that you would do to help alleviate the problem. Well, I would try to address what's called the fissured economy, the fissured marketplace, which is that so many employees are actually not employed by the company that they are working for, right? So a company looks at all of these different sectors of their company, whether it's janitorial services, like the cafeteria, HR, tech, IT, all of those different places and says, okay, well, we're going to give another company the responsibility of hiring, managing, and then addressing complaints from those people. And what that means is that that company, whether it's a journalistic enterprise or Amazon or Apple, don't have to actually deal with the working conditions of those employees. So if someone is harassed on the job, they don't have to deal with it. If someone is paid significantly less than a counterpart who is employed by, say, Amazon or Apple, there's no form of redress. They don't have to offer the same benefits. So you're basically talking about outsourced service providers, essentially, correct? Yeah, like the permalance economy. You started this book prior to the pandemic. You finished it during the pandemic. How do you believe that the last eight months has impact kind of the state of burnout in the US? I think everything that was bad is worse, right? Every source of precarity is more so. The one site that is a less cause of panic is the fact that federally funded student loans are on pause right now. But a huge portion of the student loan crisis is private loans, and they're still going. And I think that if parenting was hard before the pandemic, parenting feels impossible now. If you felt like you were barely making ends meet, you know, if one person in your household is not working right now, that's worse, right? And it's even worse, far worse for people who are not white and for people who are outside of the middle class. Final question for you. Book's been out a little bit over a week now. Obviously, I assume you've gotten lots of reaction on it. Has there been a kind of line of response or reaction you have gotten, say, more than once or a few times that you weren't necessarily expecting? I mean, I didn't realize 
how much it would be received as like, oh, this is a book that is perfect for our time, right? Because I think we are at the point in the pandemic and in the quarantine and also intersecting with kids going back to school or not going back to school. People have exhausted their resources, both financially and just like their wherewithal. Like they're like, how can I keep doing this? And you're staring down the rest of the winter. How can I possibly deal with that? But the other one is that a lot of people are like, I really want to read this book. I have no capacity to read it right now. I'm too burnt out to read about burnout. And Helen Peterson, the name of the book is Can't Even How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation, which you can get at Amazon or physical bookstores if you can find one. Thank you very much for joining. Thank you. Welcome back. What we're watching today is Capitol Hill, where House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin are meeting in their never-ending but ever-flailing effort to cobble together a new economic stimulus deal. So we wanted to ask Axios congressional reporter Elena Treen for the current state of play and why President Trump still refuses to personally get involved. Not looking very optimistic. I think leaders today on both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue kind of cast doubt on the prospect that we'll have some sort of agreement on stimulus before the election. I think everyone knows that there will be another bill, even Senate Republicans, who I think are the most pessimistic when it comes to this. But the idea that it will happen before November isn't looking that great. And that's mainly because they're just still very far apart on the key priorities. I think that Democrats have said all along that they do not want to do any sort of standalone skinny type of bill. They want, if they're going to get any sort of recovery for anyone, they want it to be comprehensive. Of course, Republicans see otherwise. The most open secret on Capitol Hill is that if the president could have a $5 trillion deal, he would make one because what they want is to inject steroids into the economy and get it pumping before November. I think if you ask the White House, they would tell you that he is involved. He's sending his key people, Mark Meadows, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, onto the Hill. But the thing here is who is most likely to strike a deal? And really, it is Secretary Mnuchin. A lot of people, Republicans especially, view him almost as a Democrat. He's willing to give away a lot. Mark Meadows is the one who pulls him back um, and kind of keeps it in line with what Republicans want. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and other Democrats find it difficult to negotiate with Trump. They prefer not to negotiate with him. They always leave meetings with him in a sometimes worse place than they began. And so I think that's why we haven't seen him play a central role in these talks. Today, we're also watching the latest in the vaccine race, with Moderna saying publicly that it won't seek emergency authorization for its vaccine until the day before Thanksgiving at the earliest. It also says that widespread distribution wouldn't begin until next spring. And again, these are best case scenarios. And they're at odds with the timeline President Trump touted during Tuesday night's debate. Although it does remain possible that Pfizer, which is also in phase three trials, could move a bit faster. And finally, we're watching Subway after Ireland's Supreme Court ruled that the sandwich shop's bread, well, it doesn't meet the legal definition of bread. Uh, apparently, its starch is a little too sugary, which means the company doesn't get a tax break in Ireland that it was seeking. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers, Naomi Shaven. Have a great national homemade cookie day. Plenty of sugar in there. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap. <laughs>